Hey, uh, we're going to jump right in tonight. Uh, Daniel got a, uh, uh, we're hoping just a little bit of a stomach bug this afternoon. And so uh, we're going to just jump straight in here. So let's pray and uh, we'll go in. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word, to be together as a church family. And Father, as we open up your word, um, may we see you clearly for who you present yourself to be. And may we respond accordingly. So, Lord, do what only you can do. You are in our midst. Um, stir our hearts, God, and find us responsive. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Okay, now, last week we, uh, we got through. We've, we've, we're walk, we've been walking through Scripture, walking through chronologically. We finished what would be the first five books of Scripture, the Torah, the Pentateuch, whatever you want to go with it. And we got to the end of Deuteronomy, and where we left where we left the people of Israel last week is we left them on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, Moses, at the very end of Deuteronomy, passes away. Uh, Moses has died. Leadership is now going to fall to Joshua. And this second generation uh, of Israelites who did not rebel 40 years prior at Kadesh Barnea, as the first generation did, uh, the second generation, meaning the second generation out of Egypt, primarily a generation born and raised in the wilderness. They are now prepared, waiting, and ready to enter into the promised land. But before we go there, I mentioned last week just where time was at, I wanted to pop back over to Leviticus and just explain real quick two things. What are the various kinds of sacrifices and, uh, and the festivals? Because those are going to come up throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Those come up in the Gospels, and uh, I'm not going to take forever to do it. But Leviticus, and if, if you remember last week, Leviticus really divides into two sections, sec, uh, chapters 1 through 10, section on sacrifices, chapters 11 through 27, uh, really uh, specifying out the Levitical laws, the process of sanctification, what it looks like. And so there's five primary sacrifices that are addressed in Leviticus 1 through 10. Five sacrifices. Uh, of those five, the first three are voluntary, meaning you choose as an act of your will and response to God to offer these sacrifices. They're offered by those who are in fellowship with God and they are intended to be offered to please God. The first of those would be the burnt offering. The burnt offering. It signifies propitiation. There's that word you never thought you'd hear a lot and we keep bringing it back up and back up because it's a good word and scripture uses it. Signifies propitiation for sin and complete surrender, devotion, and commitment to God. So it's two aspects. It's uh, your your propitiation, a sacrifice, um, appeasing the wrath of God, the justice of God, and and bringing someone back into harmony and fellowship, as well as complete, total surrender, devotion, commitment. Uh, You could use a bull, a ram, a male goat, a male dove, a young pigeon without blemish, the dove and the pigeon for those who are poor and cannot afford the ability to purchase the other for sacrifice. Uh, always a male and the animal, but the species varied according to the economic status of the individual. That's the burnt offering. The grain offering signifies thanksgiving for first fruits. So grain, flour, or bread, always unleavened, made with olive oil and salt or incensed. And, and the grain offering is to say, thank you, Lord, for, uh, for, for first fruits. 
for those first fruits of your crop and what you get. Then there's the fellowship or peace offering, which symbolizes fellowship with God. So it could signify thank, thankful, uh, thanksgiving for a special blessing, a specific blessing. Could, uh, it offers a ritual expression of a vow. You're, you're making a vow, a commitment to something unique to the Lord. Symbolizes just general thankfulness, and it could be any animal, animal without blemish, as well as a grain offering. So those are the first three voluntary sacrifices. Uh, sacrifices four and five are compulsory, meaning it doesn't matter if you want to offer it or not. If you're going to be a child of God, a, a member of the people of Israel, you must offer these sacrifices. And these were issued for the purpose, if you notice a theme with the last three, a theme of devotion, of thankfulness, of gratitude, of making a specific vow, these are offered for the purpose of restoring broken fellowship between a sinner and God. So two offerings, the sin offering and the guilt offering. The sin offering man is mandatory. It's made by one who has sinned unintentionally or was unclean in order to obtain purific purification. You'd use a male or female animal, but must be without blemish as follows. If a high priest is making a sacrifice, it's a bull. If it's the high priest or the congregation, it's a male goat for the king. It's a female goat or a lamb for a common person, a dove or pigeon for the slightly poor, or a tenth of an ephah of flour for the extremely poor. The sin offering mandatory made by one who sinned unintentionally or has uh, become ceremonial unclean in order to obtain purification, uh, and and obviously demonstrates a holy God. What we mean by sinning unintentionally uh, is um, you're you're a Jewish family, and the the husband for the eighteen millionth time put the silverware in wrong side up in the dishwasher. And you as the wife just got in an instant real hacked and you slugged them and you weren't, you didn't premeditate the sin. It was in the moment and that's the best I can come up with right now. Uh, obviously someone's going, they had dishwashers and no, they didn't have dishwashers. That probably would have been whichever member of the family. Uh, then there's the guilt offering, which is also mandatory, made by a person who has deprived another of his rights or has desecrated something Holy. So here you're dealing with sin that's premeditated, that's deliberately chosen, and, and, and a little bit more weighty as far as earthly uh, ramifications. Made by lepers, also made by lepers for purification. You'd need a ram or a lamb without blemish. Um, you, there's also a monetary payment in there for the sin. The amount of payment could be the priest valuation of the sin plus 20%. This restitution was to be paid not only for sins committed against the Lord, but also for defrauding and sins committed against fellow Israelites. This offering not only forgave the offenders for specific sins, but also reminded him that that sin has ongoing temporal consequences, even though God forgives. And so these are the five basic sacrifices that you see in the beginning of Leviticus. And obviously when you get to, you see, you see several of them come into play when you get to, uh, and we'll look at it in a moment. We'll, we'll just go ahead and go there now. When you talk about the feast and festivals, one of the feasts or festivals is the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's, it's the third of the annual festivals. It occurs in the uh, what, what they would have called Tishri, but for us would be September, October. It's on the 10th day of the seventh month. 
and the fifth day before the Feast of the Tabernacles. And on the Day of Atonement, uh, the high priest, this is the day when the high priest would go before the Lord to make atonement for the people's sins. Um, so the first thing that would happen, remember, high priest, you got to make a purification. The high priest in that sin offering has to offer a bull. So the high priest on that day would first offer a bull. And that bull was sacrificed so the high priest would be in right standing to sacrifice for his sins because he's got to be the one. As the high priest, you're the one who's standing in the gap as the mediator between God and the people. So the high priest first has to have his sin dealt with. He deals with it in that, in that bull offering. Of course, you'll remember if the high priest, they tie the rope around the waist of the high priest because when he goes through that veil, that curtain into the Holy of Holies, right? We're talking about the tabernacle at this point, that tent. And I didn't bring a, an illustration, but in the tabernacle, the, the high priest, there's that veil that signifies the eternal chasm between a holy and righteous God and sinful, broken humanity. When behind that veil, you only went, the high priest only went back there once a year. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that's where the high priest would make the sacrifice. So they'd tie the rope around his waist because if the high priest got in there and wasn't, uh, wasn't sacrificed right, wasn't pure, the Lord would strike him dead. And then you're stuck because no one else can go in there. So they would do that. Um, just as a side note, to show you the difference of Moses in the, in the history of Israel, Moses would routinely go into the Holy of Holies and meet with the Lord. So Moses is part of why when you see Moses, it says at the end when he dies in Deuteronomy, no other figure was like him, uh, obviously, until you get to Christ. So the high priest uh, kills the goat. First goat was killed. Its blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. It's the only time when the high priest would go in. And then, um, i got to find the right spot in my notes. And then the high priest would come out, and there was two aspects. The high priest would, uh, you would take two goats. And so I'm just making sure I'm staying in line here with where my notes are. So that day, the high priest would bathe with his whole body, desire for purification. Then he would sacrifice a bull for himself and his household. He would enter the Holy of Holies, place the incense on the coals, sprinkled blood from the bull on the mercy seat and the ground in front of the ark. This was to provide atonement for him, for his household, for the priesthood. Come back out, sacrifice a male goat as a sin offering for all of the people of Israel. You'd take that, the blood of that goat, you'd sprinkle it on the altar of, of the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies come back out, take another goat. And on this goat, the, the high priest would lay his hands on the head and confess the nation's sin. And they would release that goat into outside of the camp, outside of, into the wilderness. And that was where we actually get the term the scapegoat, because the goat took away the sins from the people and then the remainder of the sacrificial bull and goat will burned outside the camp and outside the city. And there's unbelievable imagery here. We won't go into all tonight because we've got too much to cover that you see the author of Hebrews, especially post Christ's incarnation, life, death, resurre uh, resurrection, where you see how Jesus is not just the high priest. He is the great high priest who needs no atonement for his own sin. Instead, he uh, is the perfect mediator, and this is, the, this is the most holy day in the Old Testament of the Jewish, uh, of the Jewish calendar and uh, was a day for um, a mercy, a day for repentance and fasting, a day of sacrifice. 
And regardless of what day of the week it fell on, it was treated as a Sabbath. So the other festivals, Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this is the first of the three annual festivals occurring uh, every year. Uh, occurs in the first month, Nisan, on the 14th day at evening. This for us would be modern day March or April. Commemorates the final plague on Egypt, Egypt's firstborn and God's deliverance of the people from Egypt. You would select the sacrifice on the 10th day and sacrifice on the 14th day to be eaten that evening. Nothing was to be left over. If you were uncircumcised, you're not allowed to partake in the sacrifice. And the unleavened bread reflects the fact that the Jews didn't have time to leaven their bread in the haste of leaving Israel. And that's where that uh, goes through. It's a time to remember God's passing over uh, the blood on, on the doorpost and his deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt followed up five weeks later by Pentecost, or sometimes the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Harvest, the Day of First Fruits, which would occur in, in, in May or June, seven weeks, 50 days after Passover, which is essentially, Pentecost is essentially harvest celebration. Weeks refers to the period of the grain harvest, from the barley harvest to the wheat harvest. It marks the beginning of the time period where people would bring their first fruit offerings. It was a time of joy and thanksgiving for the completed harvest. Uh, later on, tradition will come in and, and, and reference it, commemorating the giving of law at Sinai. But how incredible that you have two feet. So Passover, the Passover, you have the Passover lamb. Passover, mercy, deliverance, and then seven weeks later, you've got a festival for harvest, and take that now to Christ's sa sacrifice at Passover. And seven weeks later, the church born out of a sermon on Pentecost, where there was a harvest of 3,000 souls, and the church starts. So you see those go through. The other, the other feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, or in-gathering. This would occur in September, and for us is September-October on the 15th day. It lasts for seven days. It's, uh, the fourth annual festival would last for a week, the first and last of which of, of, the, of the, um, the feast were holy, holy gatherings. I mean, so like mega church services. We'll put it that way for us folk. Um, Fruit was gathered and people would dwell. They would go out. They would live outside of their homes and they would build these little uh, shelters to commemorate just like they did. It's the same word. They built these shelters like they lived in in the wilderness. And so it was to remember uh, the lessons of the wilderness, to remember God's provision of water and food. It's Solomon's temples dedicated during this feast later on. And by the way, tabernacles, of course, is the word to dwell the tabernacle of God, God's dwelling place. It says in Revelation that God literally, it says that he will make his dwelling among men. He will tabernacle among men. So it's there. Uh, you've got the Feast of Trumpets. Occurs on the first of Tishri, the shofar's horn, the ram's horn is blown. It's the start of the civil new year. Uh, over time, it would evolve into the second most holy day in the modern Jewish calendar. These are the, these are the celebrations you see established in Leviticus, five feast. Now there's two more that come later on. Purim, uh, which is celebrated in what's February or March, is established by Mordecai in Esther chapter 9 to commemorate God's deliverance of his people from Haman. And then Hanukkah. So six of the seven Jewish festivals have biblical background. Hanukkah would be in the period in between the Old and New Testament, and it referenced the celebration, uh, commemorates the victories of Judas Maccabeus over Antiochus Epiphanes. And when temple worship was reinstated, and you're going, what is all that? Don't worry, we'll get there in a couple weeks. So those are the basic festivals again. 
kind of a basic overview. There's a whole lot more you could dive into, but just so you know, when you read those, those are kind of at least the basic nuts and bolts, especially because you read them everywhere, whether you're reading in Leviticus or whether you're reading in 1 Samuel or whether you're reading in Mark and Luke and John, all of those festivals. In fact, John especially is built around certain moments with festivals. It's important to know. So, okay, we've got maybe these maps. Did they work? Did the PowerPoint work? Hey, look, I brought you some visuals tonight, and our tech team's awesome because this was put together about 30 minutes ago by me, which means it's terrible. So but I want you to see a little bit of visual. You can do this, or you can also, if you've got a Bible with maps, this is how you use your maps. Nearly everything we look at tonight, you will be able to see if you have a map. Usually you've got a map of Israel's tribal allotments or the 12 tribes in their land. You can also use that. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to pick up now in Joshua. Joshua. So just some background on Joshua. Who wrote it? Well, technically speaking, all three books we're going to look at tonight are considered anonymous because the writer never says who it is. In contrast to, say, Ephesians, I, Paul, greet you. So technically they're anonymous. Now, when you go in there, what we see about Joshua is, one, uh, Jewish tradition has always held that Joshua wrote Joshua. And that goes back to all the way to the Jews who would have seen Joshua right, Joshua. Uh, But we also just see inside, the book points to Joshua's involvement in writing multiple projects. The book is written with a first-person perspective of an eyewitness who's there. Church history holds that Joshua is the author. Uh, We feel fairly confident, other than obviously the very end when it says Joshua died, someone would have had to come behind him and fill that little nugget in, just like Joshua probably did for the end of Deuteronomy. But uh, when, when did Joshua, when does it take place? Well, it depends if you go back to last week, when we date the Exodus. Do you go with the early date, which would, the early date for the Exodus would be 1446 BC, or do you go with a latter date of 1290? And without getting into all of that, we essentially summarized last week, the early date seems to be the one that lines up the best with what we know from both uh, scripture and archeology span and what's there. Uh, archeological evidence at Jericho and Ai and Hazor today all shows evidence of those cities having been destroyed and burned in the 15th century. Well, that would be the early date. Uh, textual evidence, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, says the conquest of the Holy Land occurred, occurred 480 years prior to the inauguration of the building of the temple, which takes place in Solomon's fourth year as king, or 966 BC. So we're going to go with the early date. We know Uh, which means that the conquest, Joshua is going to pick up somewhere around 1406 BC. We know that Caleb, who's 40 years old, when they come to the promised land the first time at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers, when he goes up and spies the land, and imagine that if you're Caleb, you are faithful to God, you're 40 years old, and because of everybody else's sin, you're going to have to also suffer in the wilderness for another 40 years, which means Caleb at this point's 80. So when you read Joshua and you read about Caleb and his conquest of his land, understand he's 80. So don't anybody think you get to check out just because you're 80 or above. And if you're younger than 80, just keep, keep going because God's got stuff for you to do. Uh, he's 85. By the end of the conquest, we know that Joshua, Joshua the, uh, 1 through 14 take place in the seven years of conquest. Joshua chapters 15 through 24 take place over about a 25-year period 
uh, after that as they are beginning to get settled. And Joshua's writing, so this new generation of Israelites will be encouraged to conquer the land and honor God's covenant and, and so that their descendants would stay in the land. When you come to the book of Joshua, we can divide it up into basic three basic sections. Joshua 1 through 12, which focuses on the conquest of the land of Canaan, the actual battles, the fighting, the conquest. Uh, you have Joshua Joshua 13 through 21, which would be the division of Canaan, be the division of the land. What tribes get what land? Where do they go? Uh, what are the designated cities, the cities of refuge, the Levitical cities? And then you come to Joshua 22 through 24, which would be the conclusion of Joshua's ministry, where we see uh, a dispute over an altar and we see Joshua's final sermon and a covenant renewal. As you walk through the book of Joshua, here's what we find. Joshua's chapter one, Joshua chapter one through five, we see a preparation of the people. The people are camped out. And you can turn to that first slide, Rob. Um, it's not as big as I'd like it to be. I apologize. Uh, but you see where that yellow area is of, of Aram. That's on the east side of the Jordan River. East of the Jordan River, that's going to be where the people uh, of Israel are. They're going to be prepared. And if you got, if you got your, Joshua, look at this. Joshua chapter 1, and, and if, some of you know the verse. But it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. God spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses is dead, so the, therefore arise, cross the Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I'm giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke for Moses. Uh, he describes the land. It says, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give the people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. It says, Joshua, here's my promise. I'm going to be with you. Oh, wow. And the screen descends from heaven. Uh, hopefully there won't be any writing on the wall because that's not a good part to, you don't want the writing on the wall. Um, here's Joshua. Joshua has watched in a leader in Moses, that until you get to Jesus, there's been no one greater than Moses. And he's got to be the guy to follow Moses. So just put yourself practically as a human in Joshua's shoes. There's some, there would naturally be some pressure, some assault. You've got to now lead this people into the land and actually fight and take the land. You're not just chilling in the wilderness, waiting on God's manna in, in water every day. Oh, wow, I guess I could actually go up there and point to stuff. Wow, I've never had that ability to do that with the screen. Sorry. What is it? Uh, up, squirrel, the moment, squirrel. Um, but look at what his promise is. He said, I'm going to be with you just like I was with Moses. He says, be strong and courageous, which implies, Joshua, for you to fulfill what I've called you to, it's going to demand you actually choose strength and courage. Now look at this, verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, courageous upon courageous. So be strong and courageous to go conquer, but be strong and exceedingly courageous to do all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do all that is written in it, for then your way will be prosperous. Then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? 
Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This command is fundamental for Joshua and his leadership. It's going to be fundamental for the people of God and their ability to conquer the land and inhabit the land. And it stands, church family, for you and I today as, as, as basic to you and I and catch. And I, I tried to emphasize it there. Joshua, be strong and courageous to go fight. Be strong and courageous upon courageous to honor my word. Which tells me this, it takes more courage and tenacity and conviction to honor the word of God than to run into a battle. Most of us are never going to run into a real battle, chances. But all of us, every day, are in a real spiritual battle that demands you and I meet with the Lord, that we meditate on his word day and night. That word meditate, going back to when we looked at Bibleology earlier this spring, it literally means to keep something on your lips repeating over and over. It's not the idea of closing down your mind and pushing everything out to silence. That's an Eastern idea of meditation. Meditation in scripture, the word there, and sometimes you'll hear people say, chew the chud, where a cow will eat the grass, chew it, swallow it, digest it, spit it up, chew it again, swallow it, digest it, spit it. They'll do it four times to get every last nutrient. It's that idea, words on my lips going out loud. You and I are called just like Joshua. And God tells Joshua, Joshua, let me, we'll add some context here. Joshua, you could be the most brilliant military commander that I have ever created. And if you do not honor my word, you won't see success. Because your success is not tied to how gifted you are, how talented you are. It's not tied to the circumstances of the people in front of you. Your success is tied to me. I'm the one who goes before you. I'm the one who will give you success. I am. And here's this command right at the beginning. And church family, the same goes for you and I. And I, and I, and I emphasize that to say you and I, it demands courage upon courage to be diligent, to meditate on the word of God. And we meditate on the word of God because we seek to live out the word of God. Not just because we need something to rattle off there. And so that's where it starts. And you see uh, Joshua assume commands. You see them cross the, uh, the Jordan. And, and interestingly enough, um, just as God parted the waters of the Red Sea, so God parts the waters of the Jordan. The people go across on dry ground. When they get to the other side, having seen this miracle into the land, when they get to the other side, they set up memorial stones in Joshua chapter four. The idea being that every subsequent generation, when your kid says, hey, what are those stones? You would tell them, let me tell you of God's faithfulness. Let me tell you of God's power. Let me tell you of his might and his deliverance to bring us into the promised land. And church, there's great practical reality for that. We don't necessarily have to set up a real stone, but just when God moves, when God does things in our life, it behooves us to record those for our memory, but also so that the generations that come behind us will ask, what is that? And we tell them the story. Because remember last week, what was the command in Deuteronomy? As Moses is preparing this generation to go in, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the summation of all of what it means to walk with God. And you will have these lips on your mouth at all times. You will speak about them when you're in the car driving, when you're at the dinner table, when you are... 
You have to teach the next generation. And part of that is the prior generation speaking of God's faithfulness. There's powerful about the memorial stones. You see in chapter 5, Israel being circumcised. You also see in chapter 5, uh, Joshua has an encounter with the commander of the Lord's armies to prepare him before they go into battle of Jericho. And we won't completely jump in there tonight. Someone will be super disappointed. But, you know, theologians love to debate is, is Joshua just meeting with an angel or is that, is that an appearance of, a pre-incarnate, of, of the pre-incarnate Christ? And I think you can actually make a pretty good case in this instance that it, it very well seems to be not just an angel, but God himself appearing, uh, appearing in, in a pre, the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. It's my personal opinion. I think there's evidence there, but we don't have time to go into that kind of weeds tonight. So got questions, ask me, we'll go back. When you get to Joshua chapter 6, we see now the conquest of Jericho, and they send some spies in, they go in the land, that's where they meet Rahab, and here's an interesting statement. Sorry, it's not in chapter 6, I've jumped ahead, I apologize, everybody. It's in Joshua chapter 2, they send spies into Jericho. Uh, Word gets around the king of Jericho. Uh, Rahab hides them. They come to look for them. Rahab covers their tracks. Rahab covers their tracks. Yeah, okay, Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. So she tells them to lay down on the roof, and she tells these two spies, I know that the Lord, using the personal name for God, has given you the land. So I know, so here's kind of a confession of faith on her part. I know you're going to win. Because God's given, and you're not going to win because you're great. You're going to win because God's given it to you. Uh, and that terror of you has fallen on us. And all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And this is where she asked them to swear that they will spare her. And you, you will see the plan set up for how she will be spared in the conquest of Jericho. Here's why I point that out. Because think back to that first generation They get to the Red Sea, finally delivered from the greatest power. God, you brought us out here to die. Just take us back. They get to the Red Sea. Oh, Pharaoh's army's going to come and kill us. The God parts the Red Sea. They walk across dry land. What have you brought us out here for, God? You're just going to kill us. Take us back to slavery. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's up there for too long to them. We need a God to worship. Make us a golden cow. You're going to worship the thing you just made? They get out. God, you're you're not giving us water. God gives water. You're not giving us me all this stuff. They finally get to go in the land. They send inhabitants. And remember what they say, hey, the land is everything God promised it would be. But we don't stand a chance. We don't stand a chance fighting those people. Now, if the people of Jericho were afraid when they heard the news about the Red Sea, the Red Sea happened 40 years ago. When the people said, we don't stand a chance, the people that they said, we don't stand a chance again, were quivering in their boots because of the God who went with Israel. And Israel, that first generation, missed what God intended for them because they would not believe his word. 
Now, I'm not peddling a faith that claim it. If I just believe the word of God, he's going to give me health. That's not what we're saying here. We're saying when God makes a promise, when God says, thus saith the Lord in his word, and we apply it rightly, we should bank everything on that and not fall prey to the spirit of fear. And then the second generation obviously goes in and they defeat these kingdoms. And I mean, so you get this picture of Jericho. Here's this massive fortified city in terror. And then of course, here's they come. This is gonna be the first battle. You gotta remember, it kind of makes you think of, um, we're probably not getting through all this tonight, but that's all right. It's too good. Uh, And we're not limited to six hours, so why rush? Uh, It makes you think of, um, you know, I I can think of going back to, to something like football season and the nerves of that first game. Got to run out, you know, there's a very, well, here we go. Here's the first battle for these inexperienced people of Israel. And isn't it interesting that the first battle, when God says, here's how you're going to go conquer this city. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to get up every day, once a day for six days. And you're going to march around the city as the choir and orchestra blare their instruments. And on the seventh day, you're going to march seven times. And after the seventh time around, the trumpet players, you blare it as loud as you can and everybody scream. Now, I really process that outside of growing up in Sunday school and knowing about Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. That is the most absurd, ridiculous sounding battle plan you have ever heard in your life. And it won't be the last that you hear in the Old Testament. I mean, I just picture you're walking around this giant deal, the horns blare and everybody goes, ah! And then all of a sudden, God rips those walls to shreds. Because God in that first battle wants Israel to understand it will not be by your strength. It will not be by your might. It will not be by your ability with the sword and the spear. It will be by my power. So you fight, but you do it humbly trusting who I am in my word. Which is, of course, right after when uh, you know, God gives them strict instructions there to take nothing. And obviously some take something. And that's why then Israel gets defeated in AI because God is not just in chapter seven, that is God is not just about getting the people into the land. The aim is for them to be God's people, which means he wants to take them into the land in a place where they will really get it and understand he is God. You do things his way because he's God, because he loves you, because he cares for you, because he's right. There is intentionality here in God's taking them into the land. And so you see in chapters, Joshua chapters six through nine, the central conquest. They're going to come in into the promised land and they're going to go into that middle portion Um, And you can go, uh, let's go to the next slide, Rob. They're going to come into that middle portion. So kind of uh, where you see the word Gilead and Ammon, they're going to come in in the middle. The idea is brilliant. Instead of coming in the south or the north, we're going to come in the middle so the other two sections can't form an alliance against us while we're fighting. So they come in the middle, the central campaign, chapter six through nine. Uh, By the way, when when Jericho falls, Rahab and her family are spared. Rahab, this pagan prostitute who 
who accepts the God of Israel, and who is proudly and blatantly in the lineage of our Savior. Because God is a God who does not care how rough your background is, who does not care what people you come from. His heart is for the nations, and he delights to save any person who will say, you're right, God, I'm wrong, save me. Rahab and her family are saved, and she's part of the Messianic lineage. Uh, chapter 10 looks at the southern campaign, where they go in and, and, and conquer the major cities like Hebron and Jarmuth and Lachish and Eglon. Uh, they, they fail to take the city of Jerusalem, by the way. And then in chapters 11 through 12, they take the northern campaign. So this is, when you get to Joshua uh, chapter 12, there's a summary then of, of all the kings and cities defeated, the 31 cities defeated by uh, Israel. And then you get to chapter 13, where chapter 13 through uh, 21 are going to talk about all this land we've just conquered, who gets what. And by the way, you can look here, and when you see this, because chapter 13 is going to start, they don't conquer all the land they're supposed to conquer right away. Look at chapter 13 of Joshua with me. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, you're old and advanced in years. That's a really funny <laughs> statement to repeat. The Bible loves humor and irony, uh, and so you can trust God has humor because he writes stuff like that. Uh, very much of the land remains to be possessed. Now catch, he doesn't say you're old and worn out and you haven't done your job. He just says practically, you're old, you're advanced in years, there's still a lot of land that be possessed, the land that remains, the Philistines, the Geshurites, Shehor, which is east of Egypt. Um, and he goes on to the south, the land of the Canaanites and Merah, uh, to the Sidonians as far as uh, Aphek and the border of the Amorites. Land. And he goes down and describes this land. And he says, I will drive, in verse 6, I will drive them out from before the sons of Israel. Only allow it to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. And then we go into the apportioning of land. So when you see this here, this is that point in Joshua 13. The red is all the land that they have conquered. The green is all the land God has promised to them they have yet to conquer. But the, in, the implication here in chapter 13 is they simply haven't gotten, God has not brought them to conquer that land yet. This is different than some of the statements when you read through chapter 6 through 12, where you will read something and it will say, and they failed, or and they did not drive out so-and-so, such-and-such. Because God told them to go in there and drive them all out. You go in there and those peoples, of course, anybody who wants to repent, great, graft them in. But you go in there and you wipe all the peoples out. Man, woman, boy, and girl, you take them all out. And now, I know on an apologetic level, this is where some will come in and go, well, God, God condones genocide. Can you imagine that? In battle, going in, you're slaughtering every man, woman, boy, and girl. And that is part of the tough reality of being a geopolitical nation God bringing you to land. But I want to remind you what we looked at uh, four weeks ago. When God makes the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, he tells Abraham, he says, I want you to know, Abraham, your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs. You're right now in the promised land, Abraham. You don't own any of it. There's all sorts of pagan peoples who are ruling it around you. Your people, your descendants, they're going to they're gonna live in a place that's not this land. And they're going to be enslaved and they will be oppressed for 400 years. 
But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, that'd be Egypt, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. You know, Egypt heaped all uh, gold, silver, jewels, food, weapons, all that on them. As for you, you shall go be with your fathers in peace. They will be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation, your descendants will return here. And here's this interesting little statement. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And you go, well, what does that mean? I, I get the other stuff. What does that mean? God is saying is the people who inhabit this land, I am still showing them patience that they might repent. There is still, I see their hearts. I know their responsiveness. I am still giving them time to respond. Their iniquity has not filled up where they rightfully, uh, where it is the right time for my judgment to come upon them justly. So the reality is this, there was 400 more plus years. Those people inhabiting the lands were intentionally given by God to respond. They never did. So therefore, Israel coming in, it's not God condoning genocide. It is God using his people as an instrument of justice and judgment in the world. And those peoples they went and, and defeated, by the way, um, they are rough, bad people. When you go today to the city of Megiddo, we mentioned that Sunday, King Josiah, that's where Megiddo, he's killed by Pharaoh Necho II coming up out of Egypt. When you go to Megiddo today, it's a fascinating site. Archaeologists love it because it's basically, it's in this prime location. So, every, so you'd have a people build the city, then they'd get conquered, and the next people would build on top of theirs. It's like 19 layers. I think it's 19 or 20 layers of ruins built on top of each other. So it's fascinating. Archaeologists can see all, this different, all these different things. When you go there, there's this, in, in the middle of the city, there's this strange, um, it's bigger than this uh, white Awana circle tape outline here. It's, it's large. It's this huge stone circular platform. And easily, you and I would look at it and probably, oh, it's probably some kind of altar. They do sacrifices there, worship false gods. They would also go up there as part of their worship of false gods and get a bunch of the priests and the men and repeatedly, repeatedly gang assault virgin women and have massive orgies as worship to their gods in addition to child sacrifice, in addition to... So understand too, when you read some of these peoples... It, it's easy to go, wow, that's tough. Every man, woman, boy, and girl. But also understand these aren't, if we were to place and say, hey, you're going to go to war against the Nazis and take them all out. We don't struggle as hard with that one because we, we see, we've seen that evil. Just understand this. They're acting as God's judgment in coming in and taking. It's not God just um, joyfully uh, destroying people. But I share that to you. It's a little bit of a side. I share it to you because we live in a day where anybody uh, uh, who will, will try to pick up stuff like that and throw out, well, you know, your God loves genocide. Well, no, he doesn't. So, okay, Joshua chapter 13. The rest of Joshua chapter 13 talks about the East Bank tribes. Rob, if you go to the next slide, the East Bank tribes. What do you mean by the East Bank tribes? You can see up here on the map, uh, you see the two bodies of water, the small one on top, the Sea of Galilee, the Olong Oval one in the bottom, the Dead Sea. In between there is the Jordan River. To the east, you see East Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. Those tribes, when they conquered kingdoms on that side, they told Moses, we want this land. We want to go ahead and claim land. We want this land on this side of the river. And so an agreement was made 
that they could have that land, but when they still had, the men still had to cross over the Jordan River and help fight for the rest of the promised land. So the rest of chapter 13 describes the land and the cities given to East Manasseh, so half the tribe of Manasseh, Gad and Reuben. When you get into chapters 14 through 19, what would be the West Bank tribes? So all of the tribes on the west side. So that's Asher and Naphtali and Zebulun and Issachar and uh, west, the other half of Manasseh, Ephraim, Dan, Benjamin, Judah, Simeon, all of those tribes, what they're apportioned are. And they're, they're given their land by uh, lots which was in accordance with Moses and the covenant that was made. A key city is the city of uh, Silo. That's going to be where, or sorry, Shiloh. I don't know why I just said Silo. Uh, Shiloh. Uh, Shiloh will be where the tabernacle will remain for the next 300 years. Because remember, this point makes the statement that um, Benjamin, because Jerusalem, here, I'm going to go up here and point. I can't remember if it's Joshua Judges, but here's Jerusalem. Jerusalem falls within the territorial lands of Benjamin. And Benjamin, in conquering their land, makes the statement, they did not drive out the Jebusites in Jerusalem. So at this point, in fact, Jerusalem will not be Israel's until King David. So Shiloh, so Jerusalem is not where you're going to worship God. It's not where you're going for the Day of Atonement. It's not where the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant is. That's in Shiloh. And that's where it'll be for the next 300 years. And so these chapters, you're seeing the cities and the lands that are apportioned to the people. Uh, you see, you see uh, God's faithfulness to Caleb and Joshua in giving them their lands. It's designed to be an encouragement to readers. Look at Caleb and Joshua fo- who follow God's word to the T. They conquer what they're supposed to in contrast to Judah and Ephraim and Manasseh and the other tribes who fail to conquer all of the people they're supposed to. When you get to Joshua 20 and 21, it's what's called designated cities. Those are cities of refuge. There's three on each side of the Jordan River, those are places where let's say you're guilty of manslaughter, you're doing, you're, you and your brother are out there working on something and you turn around and your pickaxe hits him in the head and he dies on the spot. Obviously you didn't premeditate his murder, but you're now guilty of manslaughter. You, they could call, you could flee to a city of refuge and there be safe uh, for, for the rest of your days and not have to, um, and, and not be subject to legality there, as well as Levitical cities. Remember, what you don't see up here, here's what's interesting. If you count all the tribes up here, there's 12. But Levi's not up there. Are there 13 tribes? Well, it's because the tribe of Joseph, uh, we, both of Joseph's sons got land. So, bo- so there's only 12 tribes of Israel, of Jacob, but when you actually count up all the, the, uh, the 12 that got land plus Levi, there's 13. Levi doesn't get land. Their inheritance is to be priests with God, for God. So there are Levitical cities that are established where they're able to live and work. And that's what you see there in Joshua's chapter 20 through 21. Now we get to the end of Joshua 22 through 24. Joshua 22, there's a dispute about an altar. The the city's on the east side. It's a little harder to get over to Shiloh, so they want to build an altar for worship, but worship's supposed to be at the tabernacle, and so there's this dispute. They almost come to blows, but they work it out. They actually do build an altar. They call it... 
They call it witness to refer to the witness as the unity between the two tribes. Then you get to Joshua 23, it's Joshua's farewell address, which then comes into chapter 24, where Joshua, before they go into the promised land, they renew the covenant. And now that they are in the promised land, Joshua having fulfilled what God had him to fulfill, there is a people who are going to renew the covenant again. And, and look at what Joshua says. Uh, verse 2, thus says the Lord God, from, from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river. That namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river. I led him through the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But to Jacob and his sons I went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron. I plagued Egypt by, by what I did in its midst, and I brought you out. And he's going to recount going, going through how they've gotten to this point. And look what he says in verse 11. You crossed the Jordan, you came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, not, but not by your sword or bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them, and you are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you didn't plant. He says, I want you to realize, this is God speaking through Joshua, people of Israel, I have given you and you are dwelling and enjoying and inhabiting goodness that you didn't do a thing for. I gave it to you. Now, therefore, Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river or the God of the Amorites in whose land you are living. And there's Joshua speaking, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Of course, it's the famous verse that if you get married, like you're gonna get five pictures that have that verse on it. Uh, and it's in every house you ever walk into. And it's a great verse, but understand the context of it. Joshua at the very end is calling the people of Israel to be faithful to the relationship and covenant with God. And he says, you need to recognize what God in his grace and power and might has given you. And in response to that in sincerity and truth, be in awe, fear him. And you need to decide today as you are now in the land, as, you have, or we are, as we are getting settled, and as Joshua knows that there will still be more conquests to come, where the only hope for them to take the land is following the Lord. Who will you serve? And of course, that generation says, we will serve the Lord. Far be it from us to forsake. And so Joshua says, verse 19, you will not be able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. Um, he will, uh, he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and, and do harm and consume you. And, and Joshua's Joshua trying to say is, okay, you say you want to serve God, but understand the seriousness of that. If you rebel, God's going to deal with you. God's going to discipline you. God's going to bring in hardship. And they said, no, we will serve the Lord. Joshua wants to make sure the people of Israel aren't just on a camp high. You, and so Joshua says, you're witness against yourself. He said, we are witnesses. So he says, now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your heart. They said, we will serve the Lord our God. And so they renew the covenant that day. They write this down and then Joshua passes away. And so when you come to the end of Joshua, 
you see Joshua calling the people to obedience to the covenant. And it's interesting because we go next week to Judges, we're going to see it all fall apart. Really in the, in the history of Israel, there's only two times the nation really, really, really walks rightly with God under Joshua and under David. That generation under Joshua that came in and conquered the land, they walk well with God. And you see here at the end, they live out that commitment according to the first two chapters of Judges. Even though they didn't fully follow through on some things, and we'll go into that more next week and how that applies to us. But the generations after would fall, would stumble. You see this call to obedience. And you see, here's the reality, church family, going back this whole, we talked all this about war and how God's moved and how God's go back to the very beginning. The key to success was that the people would seek the Lord and encourage upon courage, dedicate themselves to his word. Now, in all of this, as we walk through Joshua, we also see it's not just a call to obedience, but we see God's faithfulness to his people. And his word. God makes a covenant to Abraham. I'm going to bring a people, a great people. They're going to live in this land. There'll be a blessing. Isaac, there's only a few in the family. Jacob and Esau, only a couple more. Twelve brothers, only a few more. A couple sisters scattered in there. By the time you get to Joseph, four generations later, they're only 70 in number. They can't inhabit the land. They can't possess the land. They can't protect the can. They can't live in the land. They can't conquer it. God takes them down to Egypt. For a while, it's good. Then it goes bad for 400 years. And God sees and he hears and he knows. That's what he tells Moses. And he sends Moses. And through using one man, he brings the people out miraculously, intending now's the time for them to go take. A generation rebels. God deals with them in his discipline. A generation beneath them sees that, says, we're going to trust and honor the Lord. They go in and we watch God's faithfulness as now, 400 plus years later, the promise and covenant that God has made to make a people, a great people from Abraham and to give him this land. Now there's a people, a great people, a large people who are continuing to multiply and they are in the land. And God's intention for them, and we'll see this play out majorly next week, we see hints with Rahab, is that they would be a light to the world and a blessing to all who see. Because God's heart is not just for Israel, it is for every tongue and tribe. And so that's where we'll stop for tonight. We'll pick up next week with uh, Judges. Just forewarning, um, I will do my best to try to keep my language relatively PG with Judges. But if you've ever read Judges, it is a rough, rough book in terms of the kind of wickedness and the things that happen. So I just give that as a forewarning. I know sometimes kids come in and I want to be... Um, I want to be respectful of that, and so I will do my best, but I just want to give that forewarning. Judges gets into some rough stuff, so just know that. Uh, I'll do my best to keep it, uh, keep it mild, but make sure we all understand the seriousness of it. So uh, let me pray. Uh, we're excited for Sunday. Um, Sunday will be really entertaining uh, because we're going to look at a woe passage, and if you've never read a woe passage, it's just it's, it's a lot of judgment. Don't do this. So it'll be a good time Sunday. We'll, we'll have fun and walk through it there in Habakkuk and... Uh, uh, it'll be good. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you are faithful. God, and thank you that truth be told, it's not that complicated. It would feel really complicated to plan and battle and to go in and all this, but it really wasn't that complicated. It was seek you 
It was honor your word. It was take courage upon courage to believe what you said over what sometimes we feel and see in front of us and certainly what the enemies across the fields are shouting back at us. So God, may we be a people who honors your word. May we be a people who do not fail in our lives and as a church to go in and possess the land and the calling that you have for us this side of heaven because we, we are found lacking in courage, lacking in meditating on your word, lacking in trusting who you say you are and what you said you're going to do. God, may we also be people who are focused on what your work and your plan is and not how we can fit our plans to try to make it seem like it's yours. So thank you for Joshua. Thank you for what we see there. God, we look to you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.